to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today, we're going to delve into healthcare investing with Sun Capital Partners, one of the private equity firms we talked to for the cover story of our most recent issue, which explored the trend of healthcare consumerization. I'm joined today by Stephen Chella, Principal at Sun Capital, along with Managing Director Dan Florian. Stephen and Dan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Katie. Great to be here. This is such a, a dynamic industry with change happening on a lot of fronts from technology to consolidation, regulation, just to name a few. I'm sure to some degree this all gets baked in when you're considering an investment, but I'm curious whether there are any forces in particular that have shaped how you think about healthcare deals and, and what makes a business attractive to Sun Capital. When we look at healthcare companies, we're looking through a lens and a heritage in consumer investing in, in 20 plus, 25 plus years of, of consumer investing. And that was really the genesis of our healthcare effort uh, was really examining the consumer and where they were today, recognizing we had developed a large toolkit for serving, addressing, improving retention, improving visit volume, engagement with the consumer, uh, but at the same time recognizing the legacy consumer products that we had invested in, restaurants and retail apparel consumer products in many cases were, were under demand pressure or uh, competitive pressure and asking ourselves, where can we take our consumer franchise and focus on the consumer in a service or a product where there's more secular demand growth? And, and the answer to that really came out as, as healthcare. And, and that's really been the, the, the genesis and, and basis for our investments. And so when we're looking at healthcare companies, one of the really important things to us, uh, and, and I think um, you know, sometimes better to be lucky than good or, or just as, as, as good to be lucky as good, we've sort of matched the market need very efficiently at, at the same time, which is healthcare businesses that have a direct-to-consumer ability, that have a marketing program, a content generation engine, technology that enables them to reach the consumer directly communicate with them discreetly, and build an immediate relationship with the patient. And I think uh, it's not only relevant to Sun's heritage and and our uh, ability and history of installing that type of feature or or function or improving it in consumer brands, but also to where the healthcare market is today, uh, particularly amongst the commercially insured population, where consumers are embracing self-direction under PPO plans, and high deductible healthcare plans, specialty groups increasingly need a way to own that patient relationship because the patients are coming to them directly. And additionally, at the same time, because of all the consolidation that's happening, more of the historical outbound referral volume that might have come into a specialist practice are being consolidated and insourced by, in some cases, private equity-backed groups, and in some cases, by publicly-backed groups who are trying to maintain kind of that full vertical patient relationship from the primary relationship all the way through to the specialty relationship or products that they're buying. And so the specialists need a way to circumvent that and, and intervene with their patients directly. And so I think targeting businesses and, and having a lens towards businesses that are able to communicate with consumers directly has been a 
big factor for, for Sun Capital and our healthcare approach. No, that's really helpful framing of, of what you look for in investment. So then taking that a step further, once you've once you've invested in a healthcare business and it's part of your portfolio, what role does Sun Capital see for itself in in supporting these businesses? What do you bring to the table as an investor and, and, and partner here? Like with all of our investments, we act in a board capacity and our focus is to you know, really add value where necessary. We hire world-class management teams to run the day-to-day business. We help craft a three to five-year strategy to create the best market-leading business we can. And we also bring a lot of learned experiences over 25 years of investing in not necessarily healthcare specific, but other retail type businesses with a distributed model. So just one example, so you can think about it. We're no longer focusing on restaurants but there's a lot of overlap between growing organic growth or even M&A in a restaurant business as there is in a distributed retail healthcare company like West Dermatology. So we bring a lot of those experiences in helping pick new sites, uh, in helping with scheduling, things of that nature that are, are similar to other things we've done in the past uh, to really help drive value at our healthcare businesses. When you're looking at a healthcare business, are you looking for one that has already made strides toward adopting consumer best practices? Or are you more inclined toward ones that are pretty early in that journey where you can come in and add value by helping them become more patient-centric? I'm curious how Steven's going to answer it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You go first. I was going to say, we like to buy well-run existing clinical models and partner with teams that have at least formatively embraced consumerism in their provider business. It can be hard to implant that mentality de novo everywhere from very senior management all the way through to the, the, the providers and the in-clinic employees that, that touch the patients. So we're looking for features like strong online reviews of the offices and, and, the, and the doctors, a high recurring patient base, a reputation for clinical excellence among other providers in the region who might not be part of this particular group. These are all important base ingredients when we're going to make an investment in a practice. Dan referenced sort of our, our turnaround heritage. That, that's not the lens uh, we take across the portfolio generally, and I'd say probably the least so in healthcare. We're not there to turn over doctor or physician bases, turn over management teams, we can do things where, where we come in and, and we might bring the first real technology refresh the business has seen, or we might help the company identify and implant product or subject matter specialists to help polish things like human resources, marketing, information technology, but it helps for us. And, and we prefer to start with an organization that's already primed for that thinking, already has providers that are embracing a patient-led approach already has managers that are embracing a service model built around those providers and creating an ecosystem for high quality clinical care in a medically autonomous environment for the providers with a high level of provider retention, high patient recurrence, strong reviews and strong clinical reputation. We're generally not looking to sort of create that de novo, uh, but we can kind of take an existing you know, ingredient set and enhance it and ideally propagate it, grow it faster than they were prior to us coming in, but we like to have the base platform from which to expand. So Dan, I don't know if you'd have a difference of opinion there, but that was going to be my answer. 
Totally agree. Uh, clearly more upside if we implement it on our own. Um, but these things are so crucial to the success of a business. As Stephen mentioned, we like to see some level of outline infrastructure where at least we know they're thinking about it the way we would. So there's various stages where we might step in. And we're not opposed to stepping in on the earlier stage, even West Durham. There's, while they had had a lot of success before we partnered with them, there's so much more they can do on some of these things. And we're really excited to help them take step two, three, four, five, which helps obviously create a lot of value and hopefully a, a very attractive return for our investors. No, that makes a lot of sense. If someone has a one-star review on Yelp because the doctor's care is bad, the best scheduling software in the world isn't probably going to change that. That's exactly right. Fortunately, I think we've been lucky enough or, or, or um, you know, have, have done enough diligence up front to have partnered with really strong clinical communities in, in, in every provider business that we've made an investment in. But you know, we, we've been students of history and, and we've reviewed enough opportunities. It feels and appears very difficult to turn around a provider base or a clinical culture that isn't there, where, where the patient care is, is lacking. That's a long J curve on, on that type of, of effort. And we, we tend to like to come in, as we talked about, find a well-functioning provider community and, and quickly multiply it. So we can really quickly go from having the diligence conversation to the growth conversation, as opposed to diligence conversation, stabilizing, then growth conversation. We, we, we tend to try to skip that, that middle part. And one anecdote that made it into our, our cover story was how you helped improve appointment scheduling at Clear Choice, a dental implant provider that Sun Capital has since sold. Can you talk about how you worked with the company to, to make its scheduling more efficient? And I think, you know, again, in, in the vein of lucky or good, Clear Choice was our one of the first uh, recent healthcare investments we've made as part of the outline Dan gave on, on sort of forming a, a dedicated and focused healthcare vertical. Sun has been investing in healthcare companies for uh, 20 plus years, but doing it in, in sort of a focused way is a product of that evolution Dan described in, in the last few years. And it just so happened that Clear Choice was probably the ideal case study we could have asked for because it's there was a lot of consumerism element to it. There was a lot of the, the patient care and, and some of the marketing and sales funnel management that, that you're asking about that turned out to be a, a really great case study for us. So what we did at Clear Choice, and, and when I say we, very much in conjunction with the management team there, Kevin Mosher, Todd DeYoung, Dennis Smythe, uh, the CEO, president and CFO, and many more, I won't give the Oscars speech, but just incredibly strong and talented and capable management team that we work very closely with on everything I'm about to describe. But you know the, the steps were really threefold. Um, ClearChoice was already doing a fairly good job of converting patients. Just for context, they were almost 100% direct-to-consumer advertised patients. Uh, so a, a lot of broadcast advertising, things like television, you see an ad on TV, you call a number, you get connected with a call center, if they, they advertise nationally, but you know they had their centers in, in more like NFL cities. If there's a center nearby, they schedule an appointment, and then you, you you show up for the initial appointment, make a decision on whether you want to go through with the procedure, and go from there. And, and they were already doing this this process fairly efficiently when when we bought the business. They were about as sophisticated when we acquired them as we see in, in sort of a medical practice in terms of managing that patient funnel and, and marketing. Um, but the tweaks that we were able to make to actually further improve the efficiency through that funnel is first and foremost, 
the call center that I mentioned was when, when we acquired the business really functioning as an intake scheduling center. It was very tactical. You call, you get a little bit of information, but a lot of, Hey, when do you want to come in? This time's available. You know, we'll, we'll make the appointment for you. One of the first things we did, and, and, you know, as I mentioned with management did was top grade, the call center, treat it more as an initial sales consult versus just an intake scheduling function. So that involved increasing compensation for the, the call center operators it involved improving training and scripting for those calls and turned the dialogue from more tactical to more conversational, trying to understand the issues that the patients were having, have them sort of describe what was going on in their lives as, as part of the process of, of getting the, the visit scheduled and explaining how potentially Clear Choice could help with the issues that they were seeing. So that was sort of step one. Step two was implementing more of an, an airline model as you know it's pretty commonly understood there's 100 seats on an airplane they've probably sold uh you know i don't work in the airline industry but 110 of them because they know on any given flight 10 people aren't going to show up and so they can oversell the inventory and if for some reason 105 show up you know that's where you get the bidding and do you want a hundred dollar gift certificate etc to to take a later flight so what we did with the company is at the time we invested the company was using as part of that scheduling process a small handful of data points, think two to four, you know, maybe three to five, and doing a very basic scoring system. I think you're probably familiar with red, yellow, green for likelihood of patients to show up and, and go through with the appointment. We worked with the company to increase the data points in that algorithm to more like nine to 12 individual data points, which some of which were part of those conversations that were happening at the call center. So now you're asking, where do you live? You know, what do you do for a living? And, and sort of getting some of these data points during those conversations that were then being used in a more nuanced and accurate scoring system. The red, yellow, green expanded to six categories. And there was a very detailed stratification of likelihood to arrive by category that the company then used to overbook in a way that was uh, much more accurate than, than what they were doing previously. So, cause there's a limited number of consult inventory. Now we can maximize it because previously a lot of the consults were going unused. And then the last change that was made or, or improvement was um, what we call sort of AB testing in, in our business. You know, when you have 20 centers or a thousand patients a month, you can break out some subsets of them and, and try different things and see if uh, you get different responses from different workflows. And so one of the interesting things about Clear Choice is, and I, I don't want to share any proprietary information because uh, we're subject to a non-disclosure, but some subset of their patients convert on the day of the appointment and some subset of the patients convert in some defined period post-appointment where they have the appointment and they say, I want to think about it. Let me call you back. And then a week later, two weeks later, a month later, they decide to go through with the procedure. Those patients that don't go through on the day of the appointment are called NSIs, not scheduled initialies. And uh, again, and in, in the company was pretty sophisticated. They were able to track NSIs and how many of them ultimately scheduled sort of by day, week, post-appointment. Uh, what we were able to do is develop some A-B testing where we tested, do you send an email on the third day or the sixth day? Does that email have a uh, a video link in it, or is it text? Do you have the doctor call the patient after a week? 
sort of these, these different ways that we could iterate on the communication cadence to the patient and how likely they would be to show up or schedule an appointment based on those tweaks. And so we were able to dramatically improve the future conversion rate of those NSIs through that A-B testing campaign. And so the combination of those three things, the upgrading the call center, implementing a, a sophisticated scheduling and algorithm and, and overbooking like an airline model and uh, doing some A-B testing around the communication cadence managed to substantially increase the uh, conversion rate in, in the clear choice funnel and reduce the cost per start very meaningfully for, for patients in their centers. And so, like I said, really exciting case study for us on, on sort of that, that consumer angle, that DTC capability and our ability to actually work with management to improve the, the operations of, of the businesses. No, it's a fascinating example. And, you know, I think with that one, there really is um, clear metrics, you know, in, in order to be able to measure the effectiveness of some of the new initiatives you talked about, you know, conversions, the scheduling maximization. I wondered if there is anything else you'd add there in, in terms of how you work with portfolio companies to measure maybe some of the more intangibles around patient satisfaction and whether new technology or, or other initiatives are actually achieving the objectives that you're hoping they will? On some of the intangibles, uh, you know, a lot of them are in certain ways tangible, right? There's, there's, there's correlative numerical data points to a good patient experience. And, uh, you know, one of them, we, we, we survey, we survey patients, net, net promoter score and those types of, of feedback are direct and explicit and, and, and pretty helpful. And we do see stratification among providers on, on net promoter score, even within the same specialty. Certain patients definitely seem to have a preference for one provider group or another, or one sort of mode of interaction versus another. We, you know, very attentively track, as I already mentioned, in diligence, but post-close online reviews and, and patient feedback. There's, there's dashboards you can develop and technology that will scrape online reviews. And so the center managers and, you know, even Sun in, in a board capacity can log in and, and see real time kind of the reviews that are being left and, and how the patient feedback is trending over time. Physician retention, it's not a direct patient experience, but it is, in my opinion, one of the best measures of a strong clinical culture is a high doctor retention. And I think one of the byproducts of a strong clinical culture is a great patient experience. So uh, when doctors are being retained, you tend to have a stable provider group that has tenure on the platform, good cultural cohesiveness, and that extends to the patient experience. So we like to see businesses that are, are retaining their doctors, particularly ones that we think are, are high quality. And then, you know, one of the, the other pieces I think is important to consider is, you know, we look at revenue per visit. And while that's not a KPI that son or anybody at the company other than the doctor controls you know in addition to having corporate practice of medicine laws and regulations there's just clinical autonomy and, and appropriateness in general where you know we don't make medical treatment decisions for the doctors nor would it be appropriate but what we can see is doctors that have built broad-based trusting comprehensive multi-product relationships with their patients and you can see that in the revenue per visit, in the amount that patients are spending each time they walk into the clinic, uh, in businesses where patients are comfortable with their doctors, believe they're getting sound medical advice and are attracted to and feel they're getting value for the purchases that they're making, 
you see that number increasing over time, or you see that at an elevated level relative to other providers in the industry who may be more transactional and just trying to get patients in and out, or who may not have the broad suite of services that some of our providers may offer. So that's another really important tangible metric for the patient experience is how much are patients spending with you when they come in? How many product attachments do they get? It's no different than a, a banking model. You know, if you're going to Wells Fargo, are you getting a mortgage and a checking account or are you just going in for the checking account? Uh, there's, there's a similar idea in, in healthcare other than you've obviously got the, the provider autonomy element to it, but it is a measure of you know, how much you like the physician and the group, just like it's a measure of how much you like your bank. And when you say multi-product relationship, is that like I go to my um, optometrist and can also buy lenses in the same place? Is that kind of what you're speaking to there? Yes. Uh, In the case of West Dermatology, it might be, you know, you you go in to get a skin check. It it turns out that it's potentially cancerous. So they do a biopsy and, you know, you, you trust their judgment to recommend the biopsy. And then, you know, maybe it's, it's uh, on your face. And so it turns out to be cancerous. You come back to that same office and same provider to get uh, Mohs surgery. And then on your way out to avoid, you know, a similar issue, maybe you buy a uh, derm grade sunscreen from that provider too. And so now they've touched you for the, uh, you know, initial evaluation for the biopsy, for the Mohs surgery, and for the sunscreen. It was all clinically indicated, medically appropriate. But if you had a bad experience on that first E&M code, the evaluation and management, sort of the, the checkup, maybe you wouldn't have wanted them to do the biopsy. You say, look, I'm going to go to another doctor and get a second opinion. Or maybe you wouldn't have come back to the, for the Mohs if the doctor didn't offer it or you didn't trust them. And so being able to quantify and, and tie patients to that multi-stage experience and see, hey, they're coming back. And then you can measure six months later, do they come back again for the check-in? Um, you know, all, all these are indications of a, a quality patient experience, a doctor that's providing comprehensive care, and a platform that's able to offer the patient all of these conveniences in one visit, which is really the, the goal and the model for healthcare generally, or at least I think it should be, and certainly that consumer prioritizing experience that we're trying to create and curate in our brands. Switching gears a little bit, I was curious to know whether the pandemic has influenced how you think about where to invest within healthcare, either the subsets of healthcare that are attractive to Sun Capital or maybe attributes of an individual business that you're looking at more closely, just given given how much of an impact the pandemic has had on this industry in particular, has that changed anything for you guys? I would say yes and no. In general, I think our strategy and overall investment thesis is, is relatively intact, but we've learned a lot during this very interesting year. And I'll, I'll give a few examples and then Stephen can obviously add to them. Speaking for our two most recent portfolio companies at West Durham, we realized that even as things go back to more normal times, uh, having telehealth as a tool that we've mastered of that business and can offer to our patients is hugely valuable. Clearly, it was a must-have during uh, the, the deepest days of, of COVID when people were you know, restricted by stay-at-home orders and clinics were closed. But going forward, we think, you know, we joke internally at Sun that you should never waste a good pandemic those lessons learned can continue to be used and utilized to make our business more efficient. You think about how much harder it is to see the same volume of patients with all the new kind of uh, restrictions related to social distancing and cleaning the clinics, being able to add volume um, digitally through 
through telemedicine is a huge lever that can really help both our business and and our patients who want to be seen by great doctors, but maybe are nervous to leave their home or sit in a waiting room. Uh, our next platform investment, Miami Beach Medical Group, is something that we would have been interested in pre-COVID as well, but COVID really highlighted our excitement to own that business. Uh, it's a primary care capitated model. And uh, as a result of that, one, we believe we're, we're gonna do well by doing good. We get paid and incentivized to help keep our members healthier out of the ER. So we're saving the government money while keeping our people alive longer and a higher quality of life due to better health. And so COVID had an interesting impact there where our cost to manage all of their health was actually lower because everybody was staying home. So in some ways that was a hedge to our other healthcare businesses. So that's, that's two examples that haven't really, you know, created whole, whole stop changes in how we approach healthcare, but some lessons learned and some modifications that make us a little more interested in some deals than others going forward. I would add to that. Well, first, I would concur. A, I don't think our strategy has shifted substantially. You know, we have seen value and enthusiasm for products like home-based care or telemedicine, but I think if anything, that really just accelerated shifts that were already happening. But what, what I think is actually the bigger and more interesting story here, and it coincided with the pandemic, I don't know if it was directly attributable to the pandemic, but is uh, what's going on in public markets right now. You know, public markets are increasingly influential in private market investment decisions, just given the number of, of SPACs in particular. And, you know, there's 250 SPACs created last year in a, in a marketplace where, you know, maybe you have 300 to 400 M&A transactions, and not all of them are going to be consummated, but, you know, they're starting to take meaningful market share of the, you know, kind of billion dollar and, and larger type of, of deals in our space. Um, and so I think it's impossible to ignore as, as a private market investor. And, you know, we're, we're still all digesting, just like everybody is, what all this ultimately means for our industry and our business and our investment strategy. But some of the observations we've had is the public market investors seem to really gravitate towards large TAM, total addressable market products, things like durable medical equipment, primary care, uh, home health, equipment maintenance. You know, th these are some of the deals that are, are getting done in healthcare. And there's a fair amount of healthcare IT and uh, insurance plans, managed care plans, I, I should say, et cetera. But these are all sort of very large TAM products, $100 billion plus markets in, in most cases. And I would say historically, we and probably a lot of financial sponsors have been highly focused on niche specialties where there's a high degree of clinical differentiation and operational distinction. But increasingly, we're starting to embrace less differentiated business models where there's a large TAM uh, and possible public market arbitrage at exit. And I think that's a little bit of a shift in our thinking that's being driven by some of the values and liquidity we're seeing in that market that uh, may, may not have factored in two, three, five years ago. And again, it's coincident with COVID and everything going on, not necessarily directly attributable to it, but I think it may be the ultimately more influential long-term story, seeing as hopefully knock on wood, we're already coming out of, of sort of this period. Great. Well, we'll leave it there for today, but would love to have you guys back on the podcast and check in with you on your healthcare strategy, as well as some of the other investment areas for Sun. Stephen and Dan, thank you for joining me on the podcast. 
Thanks so much, Katie. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.